I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from across Ukraine, discuss the latest news on sending cars to Ukraine from London, and we hear a dispatch from Francis Sternley, who took a microphone along to the Ukrainian Institute London a week before Christmas. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 22nd of December, one year and 301 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, defence editor Daniel Sheridan, journalist Richard Lofthouse and foreign correspondent Colin Freeman. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So last night, major drone attack again. So more civilians injured overnight. No reports of deaths as yet. But sixth drone attack on Kyiv this month. Second consecutive night of attacks. Ukrainian air defences say they shot down 24 of 28 drones launched over the centre, the south and the west of the country, it's air, uh, air Force said. Although air raid alarms going out over the entire country. Now, two civilians injured in the uh, in the capital, Kiev, when a, a drone hit a block of flats in the Solomyansky district. That's just west of the city centre, near the main um, train station. You'll remember that, David, the scene of your finest moment on our trip, story for another day. And then officials said uh, what they described as an infrastructure facility, no more details given there, in Mikolaev, and a grain depot in Odessa, also set alight by drones. Kiev Independent are reporting this morning that 13 oblasts across the whole country were affected by bad weather and or Russian attacks on the energy infrastructure, which have impacted the power supply of close to 100,000 people. Now, separately, Ukrainian soldiers are said to have expanded their bridgehead over the Dnipro. Um, This has come from Ukraine's army general staff. They say, despite failures, Russian forces persisted, <coughs> excuse me, persisted with their intention to dislodge our units from their positions and carried out 12 unsuccessful assault operations. Uh, the Russian forces received a worthy rebuff and retreated with losses. So Ukraine has been across there on the left bank of the river since, well, early November, really. We started talking about this thing, this raid, this foothold, whatever it was. They're still there and still not been not been pushed back into the river, equally not not moved much further forward. So quite, I guess they've not been able to, we've not seen any indication they've been able to get a, um, a pontoon bridge across or get any other, a lot of vehicles. They've got some across that we think can swim as an amphibious vehicles, but I don't think they've got anything of any great number such that they can push further to the south and southeast. Okay, next one. Ukrainian soldiers, right, we've got some footage up on our website and you'll see it elsewhere, social media and all the rest of it, of a modified BMW 3 Series firing rockets on Russian positions. Oh, hello, someone's collapsing. Near Bakhmut. So these are soldiers reportedly from the 114th Territorial Defence Brigade filmed launching a salvo of 122mm Grad missiles just to the east of Klitschivka. That's about 5k south of Bakhmut uh, in the east of the country. So four-door saloon, multiple launch rocket systems stuck on the on the rear bumper. Now, I nearly didn't do this story, as it seems a little bit flippant at first. You know, it's, it's, it's rather arresting imagery, but it's just a bit ha-ha, BMW firing rockets. But actually, the more I thought about it, the more I looked at it, the more I realised that it did actually say, it does actually say something quite profound. So we're looking at a BMW 3 Series firing, firing rockets. Why isn't it an armoured vehicle? So is this innovation launch tubes salvaged from a destroyed BM21, for example, bolted on the back or hooked to the back of a BMW? Or is this the visual representation of how much the Ukrainian forces need continued support and the supply of vehicles and weaponry? Food for thought. We're going to have a look and see what you think. Next one, Russia has threatened to sever diplomatic relations with the United States, because everything's going so well at the moment, if Washington gives Ukraine its frozen assets. So Sergei Ryabkov, Russia's deputy foreign minister, minister, warned the US not to 
quote, not to act under an illusion that Russia is clinging with both hands to diplomatic relations with that country. I mean, yeah, interesting. It's interesting that they that the lines are still open, really. But yeah, it also speaks of their concern about use of Russian frozen assets. So reports have emerged in recent days that European and American officials are considering giving Ukraine uh, frozen assets that, that have been held since the start of the war. However, John Kirby, the White House national security spokesperson that we, that we met when we were over on in the US trip in September, speaking yesterday, he said it's too early to talk about any of that and using any frozen assets. But clearly, Russia is, is nervous of that. Now, sticking with John Kirby, and in that press conference, just reference, he said the White House assesses Russian forces will be able to conduct offensive operations more easily when the winter weather conditions become more conducive for mechanised manoeuvre warfare, i.e. the ground freezes, which we're expecting in kind of Jan, Feb next year. Now, the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, notes that uh, weather is, of course, just one variable. And the upcoming period of hard freeze might come later in the year or, or not at all if it's a very mild winter. And so there could be a very short window of favourable terrain for mechanised manoeuvre warfare before the, um, before the mud gets in again prior to the summer. And for weeks now, we've seen Russian forces launching small offensive operations through the east of Ukraine, during this period of, of very challenging weather, very muddy, very very hard to manoeuvre through the back end of the year in their effort to seize and retain the initiative rather than wait for this hard freeze. They've, they've tried to go early before Ukraine are in a position to do anything. They have made small but continued advances near Kramina, Bakhmut, Adivka um, and continued what's called, what the ISW referred to and what's correctly referred to as meeting engagements along the entire front line. So just as a, a brief segue... Meeting engagements is a military term describing two forces coming together without having very good intelligence on the size or disposition of, of the, other, the other side. So essentially a sort of surprise encounter. We're talking contacts bigger than just one or two people coming around the corner of a building, seeing the enemy and scrambling for their weapons. So much bigger than that. Meeting engagements generally involve vehicles and so on, although there's not a huge amount of that going on at the moment. Now, when I was in 7 Armour Brigade in Germany, the Desert Rats, we worked on the principle that in a in a meeting engagement, and I'm talking a tank brigade, so hundreds of armoured vehicles and, and soldiers, but the principle's sound. In a, in, a, in a meeting engagement, after the initial shock of bumping into each other's past, the surprise, if you like, the, the radio reports coming in of hitting this force, hitting that force, hitting a tank here, hitting something there, and then back in the brigade headquarters thinking, right, actually, we've bumped into something pretty pretty big here. So after that initial surprise, the maxim was always... The side that decides what to do and acts first would win. Goes back to the old military maxim of do the right thing or do the wrong thing, but just do something because that way you gain the momentum, you make the, the enemy have to react to you rather than act their own plans and you, you should retain the initiative and win the encounter. A couple more for me. Victor Orban's been, been up, to his, uh, up to his tricks again. He said Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not a war. The Hungarian Prime Minister... Uh, referred, to, referred to it as a military operation during an end-of-year press conference. It's a term he's often used. He said, there is no declaration of war between the two countries. When Russia declares war, then there will be a war. We should be happy that war was not declared because then there will be a general mobilisation in Russia. I don't wish this on anyone. Yeah, I mean, fine. Victor, you, you, I mean, how you can say it with a straight face? Next, Finland. Finland has announced a new 91 million quid, about 120 million US dollars military aid package for Ukraine. Their defence ministry wouldn't disclose what, it, what would be delivered for operational reasons and in order to guarantee the safe delivery. But Defence Minister Antti Hakkinen said Finland is committed to supporting Ukraine in both the short and long term. The country has given... Sorry, that's the end of the quote... Finland has given one, about 1.8 billion US dollars worth of military aid since February last year. And just the last one for me, an interesting story in the Wall Street Journal following up about Sergei Prigozhin and, and the, the plane crash in August. They're saying that that was all deliberate and it was orchestrated by uh, Vladimir Putin's right-hand man. They're citing Western and former Kremlin intelligence officials and sources. I'll come back to that a bit later. They say that Nikolai Petrushev, the head of the Security Council and a man who was director of the FSB between 99 and 2008, said he was directly behind the downing of, of Prigozhin's private jet. They said that Petrushev had warned Putin months ago, a year ago, that um, 
relying on Prigozhin just for his the Wagner battlefield advances was giving him too much influence and that June, he saw he, Petrushev, saw June's mutiny as a chance to get rid of Prigozhin. So the Wall Street Journal, citing a former Russian intelligence officer, say that all changed in October last year after Prigozhin called Putin directly, ranting about ammunition shortages and the heavy casualties that Wagner were taking. You might remember all this time, the whole, the whole sort of Shoigu, get Asim off, all that kind of stuff. Um, that was around then and that apparently sort of did for him. After the mutiny, Petrushev started working on a, on a plan and Wall Street Journal citing Western intelligence or sources from Western intelligence services say that Putin was showing the plans, didn't object. And, and you'll remember August the 23rd. Well, the, the article says a bomb placed under a wing exploded half an hour after takeoff at an altitude of about 25,000 feet, killed all 10 on board. The Kremlin has denied any involvement in Prigozhin's death. I mean, look, we will never know. All of that could be correct. I'm not sure that currently serving Western intelligence officers would speak to journalists. Remember, of course, there is a difference between a source and an officer. When we talk about intelligence officers, they are staff of the CIA or SIS, MI6, what have you. A source could be anyone supplying information. So when they rely on, you could say Western intelligence sources have spoken to them. And we don't quite know who these, who these people are and quite how reliable they are. Also, the suggestion of a bomb planted under a wing sounds a bit dodgy. Even I might have noticed that on a pre-flight walk around and it would have affected the aerodynamics. But, you know, we will never never know, quite frankly. It's an, it's an interesting article. I don't know if it shifts the dial much, but it's, uh, it's worth a mention because it's there and it's, it's quite a lot of interesting detail. But I'll take a pause, David. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Danielle, can we come to you? You've been following this story, this spat between the British government and London's government over the decision to send cars to Ukraine that would otherwise be scrapped. You've been covering this story for, um, for, for, for a while now. Can you bring us up to date? Talk us through it. Yeah, a week is a long time in um, newspapers. So this this all kicked off a week ago. We were leaked a, a copy of a letter that uh, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, had sent to the, his counterpart in Kiev, explaining why he wouldn't be willing to send ULEZ uh, non-compliant vehicles to Ukraine, which would then be used on the front lines. Instead, he said that they would be best off being scrapped and not being put to another course. So he cited a legal threshold for his reasoning, which was that under the Euler scrappage scheme, basically it needs to demonstrate that there is a benefit to Londoners from an economic, social and environmental perspective. Now that's what he seems to be relying on in order to block this move, but it has caused quite a stir, not to mention the fact that that language seems completely subjective. Who's to say that it isn't beneficial to Londoners for their vehicles to be sent to Ukraine? You know, everyone wants to see this to see this tyrant Putin defeated. And, and what better way to do that than helping in, in, you know, small gestures? I know that this doesn't perhaps lend itself to what the Ukrainians are desperately crying out for, that being air cover and more munitions but it would I think it from what I the feedback I've had from the story what doing such a thing would pertain to is the idea that it it helps Londoners feel like they are helping the cause in any way that they can now Sadiq Khan um hasn't yet rode back on this but since we first published the story Michael Gove has intervened the Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, has intervened, all saying this is just ridiculous, that they're, they're really shocked that the Mayor of London has used this position, has taken this position, and that there must be a way that it can be explored to enable the vehicles to be sent to Ukraine. So that's where we currently are at the moment. And, and today's story, we have, I've seen a letter that Michael Gove has sent to Sadiq Khan where he basically said you know you seem to be citing section 30 of the Greater London Authority Act 1999 as Secretary of State I am happy to use my power to intervene if it will enable you to 
do something about this and actually donate these vehicles to Ukraine. I kind of paraphrase there his exact wording, but that was the gist of it. So now we're in a kind of watch this space. Are the mayor of London, is City Hall going to come back and say actually they've reviewed their position and in light of this, maybe such vehicles could be donated? We don't know yet what's to come. Thank you very much, Danielle. I mean, moving away from the politics of this, I can see, I can understand why conservative politicians might jump on this, and I can understand why Karl might back himself as well. But it does. I mean, my, my reading of it now is that we're moving into a potentially more positive phase of conversations are happening. It, with the, people are exploring ways to to find a resolution to this in a, in a positive sense for Ukraine and for London. Is that your sense too? Yes, I definitely don't get a sense that this is a shutdown. I think that there is a willingness from City Hall. To, to now that the, the pressure is piling, to ha- to relook and see what can be done. I definitely, I think we're in a completely different realm than we were before The Telegraph started reporting on this situation. Well, that sounds very positive. Danielle, I know you have to run, it's almost Christmas, but you have another story coming, about this later, coming out about this later. I know you can't say too much, but this is another big intervention, isn't it? Yes, I would class this as a big intervention and I would urge listeners to log on to the website at 4.30 when all will be revealed. But we've got another big hitter wading into the conversation and kind of demanding that Sadiq Khan changes this legality in order to get more help for Ukraine. So uh, it's an interesting person I've interviewed and I think listeners will be encouraged to hear what they have to say. Well, thank you very much, Danielle. I know you have to run off. Colin, we'll come to you next. But first, let's go to Richard Lofthouse. Richard, you a lot of your work at the moment is to do with getting cars over to Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what they mean to the people receiving them? Well, thanks for the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this all began. I bought a Ford Ranger in January of this year, and it happened to be a distressed sale by a Londoner who told me that she was selling it ahead of the expansion of the Eulers. So that's where this all began, and that was the idea And that sort of all come together with Danielle's work in the last week and suddenly the the issue taking off after all sorts of trying for months and months by by me and some others. But to your point, I think I, I saw Dom's story about the BMW that he mentioned this morning and I also tweeted about that. And it's not a flippant story. That's absolutely the essence of the answer to your question. That is to say, Ukrainians are incredibly ingenious. Um, by the way, it's not a three series. My petrol head in me says that's a 30-year-old E32 7 series. Sorry, that's a bit nerdy, but there are lots of people out there who would think that was an amazing bit of ingenuity to put the stabilizers they put on the back of that so that the vehicle doesn't lose its platform stability when those rockets are being fired. So that's a fantastic, what the MOD would call a technical. And that's exactly what we've been doing with pickup trucks. The Car for Ukraine, car number for Ukraine, is the organization, the Ukrainian organization I've principally been working with this year. And I've I've been over a few times, delivered four trucks and one SUV. And the focused activity is just pickup trucks. And the reason for that is because they're the sweet spot between competence, that is to say durability, off-road capability, and payload, and value, that is to say, what do you have to pay to buy one? The UK has been very important in this regard because there are, are an awful lot of them around at fairly good prices compared to mainland Europe, so much so that pretty much every other pickup truck on the front line seems to be British. And the law was changed in Ukraine to allow right-hand drive vehicles to be registered with the Ukrainian military in the summer. So it, you know, it's been a steep learning curve, but there's an enormous amount of expertise out there. And what Car for Ukraine does is to actually take these vehicles into a workshop and to armor them. So we put armor plate around the engine block, all the vulnerable bits, the doors, and create uh, sort of satted bits that if, if it's a crew cab, the passengers can hide their heads behind. And the point is not that that armour plating can't be pierced by you know, certain calibres of, of weaponry. The point is that if there's a, a fragment or shrapnel flying at you from an angle, eight millimetre steel plate will deflect that and save a life. 
the other thing to point is that these vehicles are very versatile. So not only can they easily withstand the 350 odd kilos that are added to them in the armoring process, but of course we've all seen these pictures on Twitter of or footage, uh, helmet cam footage of the being of them being used to extract the wounded so you're not going to get an old nhs ambulance across that kind of mud it's just not going to work but a pickup truck with the right aggressive tires will be your best friend in a situation like that and they're light and maneuverable so i think i think the answer is that these vehicles are extremely valuable but to come back to dom's story about the bmw any vehicle is valuable so when we come back to that ulez london conundrum i don't have the data from capita who run the scheme for TfL on exactly how many 4x4s are going through the scheme. But I can say for sure that we've had requests from military units in places like Kherson, where they actively want, say, a Skoda Fabia, like a small inconspicuous car that's not going to be painted olive green, just so that soldiers can be moved around inconspicuously and not picked out by drones. So every single vehicle potentially has a huge value and I always, it, all of it can be filed under that American World War One commander, John Pershing, who said that infantry wins battles while logistics wins wars. And I think that's what this is all about in the end. That's really fascinating. Thank you, Richard. Just one quick question before we go to Colin. Um, in all of your time doing this, what, what have you, what have you learnt about the nature of the war out in Ukraine? And if, if you had one memory that you'd want um, our listeners to know and understand, what would it be? I delivered the... Grand Jeep Cherokee, that was the one SUV that wasn't a pickup truck, to, I handed it personally to Mamuka Mamalashvili, who's the commander and founder of the Georgian National Legion. And that was also my first extension that went beyond Lviv to Kiev, which is a, adds 645 odd kilometers. It's a long way. Um, when we got there, absolutely knackered. And, but it was just seeing how valuable that vehicle was to to them despite its relatively low value here in the uk just opened my eyes to the the value of donations whether they're humanitarian medical toys for children it doesn't matter what it is but if we just bring it back to the vehicles they are of such value and the thing is that mamuka had specifically asked for suvs Again, this is about how every different vehicle has a role because he wanted to be able to transport small groups of special forces. So he was about he wanted to carry men fast. He didn't want them to be armoured, and he didn't want to put guns on them. He just wanted them as transport, fast in and fast out. And that tells you again just how many different uses there are. So that that was certainly my favourite memory as well because it was just crazy i mean it was for me it was my only my second trip to ukraine and i really felt as though i was part of it at that point well thank you very much richard lofthouse for joining us and a very happy christmas let's go to colin freeman now colin thank you so much uh, for joining us it's really good to have you back on the podcast you've spent a lot of time in ukraine over the past year you've been up and down the lines uh, you've been interviewing soldiers civilians it, what we kind of would love to hear from you really is just your appraisal of the year really how did it how, how did you how do you see it how did you see it for, uh, unfolding what do you think the big lessons are for us going into 2024 I've spent two stints in Ukraine, both about three weeks each, watching or trying to make some sense of the progress of the counteroffensive. That was first time back in June when it started, then again in October, when I, I suppose you could argue it was perhaps drawing to an end. I, sh- I want to put a, a quick health warning on my remarks about um, the, the counteroffensive first. When you're there as a reporter, you talk to soldiers, individual soldiers on the ground. It's important, it's important to say that the average individual soldier in any bit of the front line cares mainly about the square kilometre or so in front of him and perhaps a little bit less so about um, his buddies in the square kilometres adjacent to that. They don't often have much of an idea of what is going on um, in the wider strategic sense. And if they do, uh, or there are commanders who probably do, they probably won't tell you. That is just the the facts of it. I mention this because in a piece I wrote back in October about the counteroffensive, that was one of the one of the observations I included. And uh, a Ukrainian defence expert who happened to read the piece 
lit upon that remark and said, I wish more people said that more often. It may have been her polite way of saying, this is the only sensible thing you said in the whole bloody article. But uh, yeah, it, it's perhaps just important to give readers that sense that when they say they've been talking to soldiers on the ground, that does not mean they get much of an idea of how the counteroffensive is going. I think if you really want a sense of how it's going at the, the sort of strategic level. Yeah, you do what we do on the podcast quite often. You read the studies, the, the reports from the Institutes for the Study of War and so on. When I was last there in October, when you know it was a bit easier to get a, a measure of what progress had been made, there wasn't an awful lot to see a lot of the time. You're talking about 10 miles progress here, maybe down in the south around Zaporizhzhia. I was up mainly around Bakhmut, and it, it was a similar picture there, you know, a village taken here, um, a hamlet taken there. Often you are talking about minute places of maybe only 500 people who've all moved out long ago anyway. And they're actually fighting over not much more than a, a pile of rubble, some tiny hamlet somewhere. But when you listen to the accounts of some of those battles, there's one that I remember learning about when I was there in October, and you know, it was a two-month battle just to take a hamlet of 500 people, uh, a hamlet that would have had 500 people in. And while those sorts of victories don't really capture the attention of the wider world, it's not like Kherson being being liberated. There's not crowds of jubilant flag wavers everywhere. They, they do matter because the Russians are fighting for them absolutely tooth and nail. So what, when progress, you know, is you can measure sometimes the progress in just about a case of a, a few miles here or there, but when every square inch of territory is being fought tooth and nail, a few miles is actually quite a lot. The other thing, though, that will be one of my abiding memories of this year will be when I was in Ukraine in October, and on October the 7th, of course, you had the Hamas attacks in Israel. And it was an odd feeling. It felt like for the first time in 18 months covering the conflict that the world's attention was turned elsewhere. It was the first time that Ukraine did not feel like the absolute number one foreign policy priority for Western states and Ukraine's backers. And I think psychologically that has been hard for the Ukrainians. It's very easy to, oh, it's not easy. It's one thing to fight a war when you feel the world is cheerleading you on. It is another thing to do it to be risking your life when you feel that people's heads are turned elsewhere, that they no longer seem to care quite so much. And you're just another of those conflicts that is going on around the world. And it's also noticeable that since that happened, since the Hamas attacks, which have, of course, sucked up quite a lot of the bandwidth that Western leaders um, are able, you know, are able to muster for the, the competing demands of, of Ukraine and Israel. Um, since then, we have noticed this slew of headlines just subtly changing the narrative in Ukraine. I mean, it, I think it's unfortunate that it, the Hamas attacks coincided with in terms of a sort of with the sense that the counteroffensive was beginning to run its course and had not succeeded in perhaps quite the spectacular way people might have hoped it would even though that was probably a bit unrealistic but then you've also had reports of infighting between Zelensky and his generals of the mayor of Kiev Vitaly Klitschko describing Zelensky as autocratic a little bit of removal of the halo of Zelensky and his acolytes. You've seen Putin being buoyant at press conferences recently. He's got to remember that just six months ago, it seemed very much like his days were numbered when you had the coup led by Evgeny Prigozhin. And then you've also got a slew of other issues that, that, that have been running for a while, but now seem to be coming to a head. What happens if Trump gets into power and cuts funding? What happens if Kiev's other backers start to get to run out of cash or just generally get Ukraine fatigue and, of course, the shortage of artillery shells, which really is a problem. And, of course, all this fuels the talk that Mr Zelensky now needs to come to this negotiating table maybe by next year. But I was speaking to some Ukrainian experts just yesterday and they point out that is not necessarily within his gift. The Ukrainian public 
a lot of them, certainly, especially those who are involved in the fighting, generally a lot of them want to keep on going. They've fought far too hard and they've lost far too much to want to give up now. So that that is that that is something that I think sometimes is not borne out in this rather glib talk in the West that if we pull the funding on their weapons, then that's going to be the end of things. Colin, hello, mate. It's Dom here. Can I uh, jump in just for a moment? I'd be really interested in your observations, just moving on from the point you made there about potentially the world's attention moving on and also the way that things have slowed down, certainly on the land campaign of of this war. Your your experience of going in and out numerous times over the last last couple of years, working with fixers, working alongside, seeing many, many journalists from different organisations, different countries all, all over the place, all around the world, in and out of Ukraine. Have you detected any any kind of any fatigue amongst the journalist class? Do you see these kind of well, how are they characterise the sort of uh, almost what sort of war pornographers, people that go out and say they're a freelance journalist and run around and it's all very exciting, and maybe they're getting a little bit bored now because it's a very dangerous and b there's another story in town. I just wonder if you'd seen a shift in how how many people are reporting it, how many people you're bumping into, are the fixers getting bored, are the fixers still there? Just what, what the, the sort of mechanics of telling the story of this war, how's that changed over the last, the last sort of 18 months? It's definitely less people now than there used to be. You, you, for example, you know, access to brigade press officers, for example, for access to the front lines used to be quite difficult because they had so many requests all at the same time. Now it's a lot easier. Certainly in October, it was not a problem. Then again, when I was in there in October, we were not there at one of those pivotal moments in the conflict. I would imagine if we fast forward to next year, to February the 24th, you will see probably just as many news crews or, or certainly a pretty respectable turnout of news crews of TV crews and so on going out uh, to to cover it and reminding people that this war is still happening my my general sense also is that compared to other big conflicts like Syria y- Ukraine has continued to capture the imagination of the Western public I, I think partly because they are people we probably identify with a bit more they are fellow Europeans or they certainly aspire to be and also just in in the way that they talk about the conflict you know you, you can often feel like th- these are people like you might end up you could bump into at work or or, or might be having a drink with the the cultural references that they use when they're describing things they'll sort of say oh I saw this huge explosion or this happened or that and it was like in this Netflix series you know like like in Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul there's there's all these references to the 21st century things that you and I also identify with and and that keeps it very much in the public eye despite what's been happening in 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 Israel and Gaza which I suspect may slowly go off go off the radar a bit and it may well be that within a by by the time I'm back to you the second anniversary next year attention will be back on Ukraine the other thing is that if God forbid, but if Putin does start showing signs of actually winning again and making substantial breakthroughs, I think that will probably alert people to the you know that uh, that Ukraine is still the big story if they are if they aren't already so. Thank you very much, Colin, for joining us. It's great to hear you again. We'll come to you last in our final thoughts, of course, but let's go to Dom Nichols first. Yeah, thanks, David. Just while I'm I'm watching something this morning that other people might be seeing breaking across social media. So the commander of Ukraine's Air Force, Mikhailo Oleshchuk, has said that Ukraine's air defences shot down three Russian Su-34 fighter bombers in the south of the country over the last 24 hours. Now, Russian military channels have confirmed that at least one Su-34 has been lost. So I'm not entirely sure what's going on. However, these are very, very capable aircraft. Only about 20, I mean, it's a big number, but 20 have been lost so far since February 22. So to lose any of them is um, it will be a, a blow for Russia. It would be very significant if three have been shot down. I mean, not only because that's a huge blow the, from these the Su-34 very capable fighter bombers, but, you know, if there's some... If this is a new air defence system, maybe a Patriot, I do not know, I'm absolutely guessing here, but if this, if this speaks of the integrated air defence system that Ukraine now has, I mean, that is, a, that is a very significant event. If three SU-34s have been lost in 24 hours, that speaks not only of a degradation of the Russian Air Force and their capability in, in Ukraine, but also of how far 
Ukraine air defensive have advanced since, um, well, in the last few months and certainly since last winter. Thanks, David. Oh, yes, and not scripted at all. But, David, have you got a final thought? I do, Don. We'll come to that last, actually, because it feeds in quite nicely to what we've been talking about today. But thank you so much for asking me. But Richard Lofthouse, very quickly, your final thought. Thank you. I interviewed um, a Russian academic earlier this year, Ekaterina Pravlova, who's at Princeton University, manager, directs their Eastern European Studies Department. And I asked her what she thought the West should be doing, and she just said a lot more than they are. So that's my thought as we go into what will be, I think, a very challenging year. I mean, if we bring it back to the vehicles, this is definitely the moment for London to start giving for the thousands of vehicles it's scrapping to Ukraine so we can get the numbers up. Thank you very much, Richard. Great to hear from you. Colin Freeman, would you like the final thoughts? Uh, yes, I'll just chip in with my tuppence worth on the vehicle thing, uh, if I may. I did a story about um, vehicles being sent to um, the Donbass from various farmers' yards in Devon last year. And I think that the reason that Britain has so many of them is because Mitsubishi L200s, which are one of the most popular pickup trucks for use as rocket launch, improvised rocket launchers in uh, in Ukraine. There was a glut of them on the British market because Mitsubishi shut its spare parts operation or its, its, its spare parts franchise in the UK a few years ago, apparently, which meant that they had a limited resale value on the second-hand market. That That is the weird interplay of globalised forces between business and the war zone. They're also very handy because they are because British vehicles are right-hand drive. When a Russian sniper sees one coming along the road, they tend to aim at the. They usually assume it's a left-hand drive car, and they aim for the driver on the left-hand side. And I've under, I've heard several examples of crews being saved or drivers being saved because the Russian snipers have aimed at the wrong side of the um, uh, wrong side of the windscreen. Just finally, on my own sort of final thoughts, I'll leave you with this. This In February last year, I covered Zelensky's anniversary press conference, marking the first anniversary of the war on February the 24th. He will doubtless hold another one next year. At that one last year, he was asked a question. He was asked if the war is still raging at the same tempo next this time next year, i.e. by February the 24th, 2024, how will you feel? And he said, that is a drama I do not even want to think about. I fear everybody will be demoralised, we will be exhausted and tired. When he said that at the time, that was back in February, it seemed an unlikely scenario because the, the war was still very much going Ukraine's way. The counteroffensive was, you know, had yet to play out. And the country hadn't been exhausted by yet another year of war fighting. I think if he's asked that same question in in the press conference in February, it will be interesting to see what he's got to say. Thank you very much, Richard, Colin, Danny and Dom for all of your thoughts. My final thought, thank you so much, Dom, for asking, really does dovetail with some of the things we've been talking about today. Listen, long-time listeners may remember that back in June, I actually went with a group of British volunteers, drove all the way from London to Kramatorsk in eastern Ukraine, following their journey at every step, going from London to France, to France, across to Belgium, through Germany, through Poland, across the border into Lviv, up to Kiev, down to Kharkiv, and then finally down to Kramatorsk and back to Kiev. It was quite a journey. We've made that trip, that reporting trip, into a two-part podcast special. We'll be publishing the first part on Christmas Day, so there will be no live Twitter broadcast on Christmas Day, but we will be publishing the podcast on Christmas Day and the second part of that journey, which ends in Kramatorsk, a frontline city that I'm sure Colin is familiar with as well, ends there. So do listen to the podcast on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. That's when they'll be coming out. And it's basically what we've been talking about today. British volunteers and others taking these vehicles, Mitsubishi L200s that Colin's mentioned there, they're very, very popular. What's it like to drive them across almost an entire continent to get to bring them to the other end, to see the highs and the lows of that journey, and to see what it means to the people who receive them on the other end, who, after I met them, went straight back to the front lines in Bakhmut. So do tune in on Monday and Tuesday for Sunny Days in Kramatorsk, parts one, and then part two. Thank you, Dom, Colin, Danielle, and Richard. A week ago, our own Francis Sternley attended a Christmas event hosted by the Ukrainian Institute in London. There, he managed to catch up with quite a few people, Here's Francis Sternley. 
Christmas is always a period of reflection, but for Ukrainians this year, doubly so. On Sunday, I attended the Ukrainian Institute of London's festive get-together in Holland Park to hear from the different Ukrainian community organisations in London, to exchange ideas and to listen to carols, an excerpt of which you'll have just heard. Afterwards, I spoke to several attendees who work for or with the Institute, including those who teach English to Ukrainians and the other way around. First, though, I had a conversation with its director. My name is Lesa Kromachuk and I'm the director of Ukrainian Institute London. Well, the Ukrainian Institute London, something that will be familiar to many listeners because we've referred to events you've hosted in the past. But for those who aren't familiar... Talk about the Institute and its work. Sure. We're an independent charity. We try to educate audiences in London and beyond about Ukraine, about its history, about its culture, um, literature and current affairs, of course, as well. And the shape of Ukrainian society, how they see its future. And we do this in a number of different ways. We run public facing events that you've attended and covered. Thank you so much for doing that. We also um, have educational courses. We have courses in Ukrainian history, Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian language. By the way, the language courses keep growing, which is fantastic. Lots of people want to learn Ukrainian, which is such a joy to see. We also have various other projects. We have an online publication called London Ukrainian Review, so check it out. It has wonderful articles about all things Ukrainian in a very accessible and fresh way. So if you want to discover Ukraine in a different way, that's one place to turn to. Uh, Yeah, so our activity is very varied. You might have seen posters of our film festival if you were walking through Soho in September. So we have an annual film festival and we try to showcase some of the best examples of Ukrainian cinema to film lovers, really. But through that, also explain something about Ukraine, how Ukrainians are processing the war, of course, but also the... Um, Ukrainian culture more widely. At the moment, actually, we're running a retrospective. Speaking of cinema, we're running a retrospective of Ukrainian films, uh, the Garden Cinema. So check that out. Wonderful films from starting with 1920s and up until more or less up until the present day. Amazing. Now, today, it's a sort of Christmas drinks and we've had some Ukrainian carols, which hopefully listeners will have heard a little excerpt from. Christmas time for Ukrainians. For those who aren't familiar, perhaps you could just give a brief summary of its significance when it's celebrated and some of the changes that have taken place in Ukraine itself around Christmas. Yeah, big change this year that we're switching to a different calendar. So we're going to be celebrating it not in January anymore, but in December. And the, well, what can I say? I mean, it's, it's a bittersweet time. It's the time when families are split, uh, are not able to see each other uh, because of Russia's war against Ukraine, where some people are spending their Christmas time in the trenches uh, and others waiting for their loved ones at home or grieving or visiting the graves of those that they've lost already. Uh, it's a time of uh, regular bombardment of Ukrainian cities by Russia and uh, the time when children might be opening their presents in a bomb shelter. Uh, but the time of hope and the time of determination and the time when we all come together and support each other and think to the future. And just tell me a little bit about the changes in Ukrainian culture that you've seen as a result of the war. One thing that's been very striking talking to people is the sense of perhaps many people of the diaspora or of different generations who have not returned to their roots, but have been reignited in their interest about Ukrainian history and culture. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about that process. Yes, I mean, the, this is an existential war that Russia is fighting against Ukraine. Russia, Russia has de- Putin has declared his aim uh, in July 2021, before the full-scale invasion, and the aim was to destroy Ukrainian state, but also Ukrainian nation. So it's, it's utterly existential, and that means that everybody sort of, you know, has to go back to the basics and, and figure out, well, what is it that we're protecting? What does it mean to be Ukrainian? What does it mean to protect Ukrainian statehood? It means to protect basic human rights. It means to protect that which you love. Love. Um, and that is why it's so important to understand that Ukrainians are fighting driven by love, by love for their immediate family, the you know the closest and, and, and dearest, 
but also for the cities and their country and, and the idea of the future, the fact that they want to live in the country that they are building and not under occupation and not being, being, uh, being told what to do by some delusional dictator. So because it's an existential war, identity has become even more important. And here I'd like to paraphrase something that Olena Stiashkina said, a Ukrainian writer from Donetsk, so already displaced once in 2014. She now lives in Kyiv. Uh, and she said, when threatened, I know exactly who I am. I am Ukrainian. So yeah, we all, I suppose we all had to figure out what it means for us to be Ukrainian. But the wonderful thing is that whether you're Crimean Tata, whether you're Russophone Ukrainian, whether you're Jewish, whether you're politically on the left or the right or whatever in the spectrum, you know what it means to you to be Ukrainian. And you know how important it is for you to come together with other Ukrainians to defend that which is threatened. Wonderful. And just lastly, this there's a lot of pessimism around at the moment, but you're smiling. Are you an optimist about the future for Ukraine and for Ukrainian culture in the long run? I'm a realist, I think. Ukrainians have been stateless for such a long time, and we've regained our statehood just over three decades ago. We have no choice but to keep fighting for it and protect it. We're grateful for all the support that we receive, but I know for certain my people will keep fighting for as long as it takes. And I would urge my fellow Europeans and international community to maybe maybe at this time, at the end of the year, to reflect on what place in history they want to see for themselves, what role they want to have played in this war, which side they are taking and which side they're protecting. And I very much hope that they will see how they can explore their own agency in this existential war and that they'll continue to care about peace in Europe because there will be no peace in Europe until there's lasting peace in Ukraine. Yeah, and thanks again to all of you who have supported us so far. It means a lot. My name is Olga Plusch. I'm displaced Ukrainian and I, first two months of the war... from the beginning of full-scale invasion, I was in Ukraine, and then I saw that Ukrainian Institute London was looking for teachers to teach Ukrainians English, and I applied from Ukraine to be online teacher, but when I sent my CV, I had a feedback from Maria Montagu, the deputy director of Ukrainian Institute London, that she has another offer for me to help them to set up English school for displaced Ukrainians. So basically, one week after this Zoom call, I got my visa to UK. Week after, I came to London. Week after, we met with Maria. And week after, we actually set up English school for displaced Ukrainians. Thanks to British Land, because they helped us with them. A place where we have our classes and we had 15 groups at Paddington and in July we started to have at West London Welcome Centre so currently it's the only place where moms can come with their little kids because we have volunteers and Welcome Centre has fresh air so it's not just vital for them to learn English, but it's also like to have this Ukrainian community to have support. It definitely helps them to settle in in the country and it helps them mentally to go through all these challenges and have these friends and community to share their experience, to get some advice, support. And for the past year, so it is our second year we run this school, we had over 1,000 students. And for them, it's elderly, like from 18 till 80. And we have a lot of students, like elderly people who never have been learning English before. So for them, it's their first experience. And they are the most grateful students because they learn how to read. Then they can read uh, uh, streets names, stations names, to do groceries. So they really appreciate it. But even though it is vital to learn English, from our experience, what we see, get and get together, like spending time together to have this certainty during uncertain times that they have these classes twice per week. It's actually very helpful. And we had a feedback that during these dark times, this place, our school became place of light for them. Just tell me a little bit about the nature of how do you even start teaching English, perhaps to people who aren't are older. I mean, what's the begin? What's the first steps? 
they keep telling us that they are old school, so they na- need physical books. And uh, th- this is what we did to begin with. We provided all students with the books. And um, now we, for starters, use English for everyone. And high level, we use person. So there is opportunity to have digital also as well. But they use their phones and computers for audio. But they are very... Um, into it like it's uh, in, when I was teaching English in Ukraine I actually had to encourage people all the time ask for their commitment why do you learn English here it, like they are so motivated and they're so encouraged to, to learn English language that it encourages and inspires me even more and how have you felt moving to Britain from Ukraine It was a hard decision for me because I came here with my teenage daughter and we don't have any relatives here. So it was this uncertainty was challenging. But due, uh, due to Ukrainian Institute London, due to our English school, I have this Ukrainian community, I have friends, I have students. That makes me feel like home because uh, I feel this support, I feel this, I hear Ukrainian language all the time, so for me it's very helpful. And sometimes London, because I came from Kiev, reminds me, London reminds me Kiev, and England itself, like the beauty, the countryside, reminds me of Ukraine. So UK became my second home. And what do you make of us Brits? We're a rather eccentric bunch at times. Well, I had experience living with my host UK family, so our UK family became, became our second family and we have amazing relationship and I'm very, very grateful for their support and help. Hi, um, my name is Oksana Popova and I'm managing the Ukrainian school at the Ukrainian Institute, Institute London. So tell me about the school and what its central role is? So the school teaches Ukrainian as a foreign language. We have at the moment around maybe 150 students. So we offer individual classes, one-to-one classes. We offer group classes online and also in two locations in London, in Paddington and Holland Park. Our groups are quite small. It's up to eight students. We also have very specialized courses, like courses for students who have learned Slavonic languages before, because once they've learned another Slavonic language, they progress much quicker through, they go through curriculum much quicker. And we have uh, also courses for heritage speakers. So those who might be, might have been exposed to Ukrainian language as a child from family or friends, uh, but haven't actually developed it properly. So yeah, uh, we are preparing for the winter term. Our term starts on 22nd of January and the term runs for 12 weeks and we also have some intensive courses during Christmas period for learners who have learned a bit of Ukrainian who are in pre-intermediate level. So that will start from mid-January. And tell me a bit, who are the students? Are they younger people? Are they older people? Are they Brits? Are they just interested to get a sense of... Yeah, various. The Ukrainian, the popularity of Ukrainian language for very sad reasons have grown up so much in the last two years and the school has expanded so much. So we have like 25 groups of students. They are various. We, We only teach adults from 16 plus. So they are various professions. They might be journalists who travel to Ukraine quite often. They might be other professionals who need Ukrainian for work, charity workers, or yeah, in that sector, NGO sector, there might be people who just want to support Ukraine by learning the language or who are interested in the culture. There might be linguists who learn other languages, but also show support to Ukraine through learning the Ukrainian language. So varies, really, it varies. And for those who aren't familiar with learning the Ukrainian language, what are some of the big differences and what are the challenges? It is, it is a commitment, first of all. So if you are an adult and you're a professional, of course, you have to find the time to do your homework a little bit to study. And it is a challenging language in a way, if, if, as any Slavonic language would be. Um, I, I, I'm a linguist myself and I find English is quite an easy language to learn. So it takes some dedication and takes some perseverance to, to learn the language. And where do you start? I mean, what's the, is it, as with most languages, the weather, how to say hello, goodbye? Or is that, are there other building blocks that need to be established first because it's so different? 
No, yeah, you'd start with the alphabet and trying to read Cyrillic, and then you progress to survival phrases and everything. <laughs> As with any language, yeah, it's a... You, you don't... The beginner classes, the beginner groups, for them, the beginner courses, you don't need to have any prior knowledge of any language. So you start li- literally from basics and you progress. And uh, given that the classes are quite small, you'll actually make progress quite quickly. So by the end of term one, let's say 12 lessons, you're actually able to say quite a lot in Ukraine and you're able to get by if you are suddenly in Ukraine and need to do the daily things. So, yeah, it's quite intense, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not as difficult as it, as it might seem. So to anyone who's listening to this around the world, who's been contemplating taking up Ukrainian, I'm asking you an impossible question now. Why should they learn Ukrainian? First of all, I think to support Ukraine in this difficult time. And also I think Ukraine will, Ukrainian language will take a greater role, much greater role with time to come. And it's been overshadowed a lot by the Russian language. And I think the role of Ukraine in the world will, it will take a bigger stage and it will be a useful language actually. I'm hoping that it will be a useful language to work, to learn. And also I'm hoping that learners will be able to travel to Ukraine again when the war finishes. And yeah, it's it's a beautiful language as well. It's very melodic and very, it's a beautiful language. <laughs> I might be biased, I'm Ukrainian, but... No, I, I could give out it is a beautiful language. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Vlodko Pavluk, Association of Ukraines in Great Britain, London branch, Holland Park. So first of all, can you just tell me a little bit of the history of the association? We're talking about events after World War II, where many Ukrainians ended up as displaced persons or POWs in Western Europe. And some of the first Ukrainians that arrived here in 1946, who were part of the Polish Corps, ended up in Edinburgh, either training or had a base there. And because they knew so many Ukrainians would be arriving over the next two, three years from Germany, as says these police persons, they taught that they thought they would start with the help also of a Canadian Ukrainian servicemen to to start a community organisation called the Association of Ukrainians Against Britain, which, like I say, was founded in 1946 in Edinburgh. And how many members did it have back then? Were, were these quite large numbers of diaspora, or was it very small? No, after World War II, between about 1946-1949, about 50,000 Ukrainians ended up in the UK, displaced in various camps throughout the UK, in Scotland, England and Wales. So after a time, when they had the permission to seek work and also live in as normal citizens do, they then decided to spread out and create branches in the Midlands in the north and in London as well. And what kind of things did the association do then that may be the same or differ from today? I think what they did then, their, their core aim were, were, was to uh, set up community centres. With community centres then came schools and also purchase or build churches. But it was foremost for them, it was more about Ukrainians, having a place for Ukrainians to meet, to celebrate, to commemorate, and just to talk and be within each other's company. And that is now happening today as well, with the, uh, with unfortunately, with the refugees that have come here since uh, 2022. Well, that was going to be my next question, because you're second generation yep. Ukrainian. How do you feel seeing the new wave of diaspora? I mean, in some ways, it must be nice, but it almost must be extremely tragic as well. Yeah, I think there's mixed emotions here, because the, the war is a catastrophe for Ukraine not just destruction, but also displacement of people as well, refugees throughout Europe, refugees displaced in Ukraine. And I think a lot of them are young, educated, people who should be living in Ukraine, building Ukraine, and they're not. And many of them are trying to start lives here in Europe, in the UK, but a lot of them also feel lost because language is an issue, also work is an issue. And hopefully, not just this centre, but also we have the cathedral in, in, in Bond Street, near Bond Street Station. We're trying to make them feel at home. We're making, trying to make them understand there is a place where they can come and talk and communicate and maybe make them feel at ease within this certain environment we have here. How would you rate the British response in terms of integrating refugees? Obviously, a lot, a lot came. There was a lot of praise that was given to the UK response. Perhaps the numbers were nowhere near as high as certain other mm-hmm. European countries, but... 
good what, in what ways has britain done well and one way in what ways has it done perhaps less well mm. i think when we talk about what they've done what they haven't i think two years is, is short, too much of a shorter period to talk about how they've integrated regarding work language etc etc so maybe that question will be maybe more 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 obvious maybe three or four or five years time but i think i think many ukrainians whether you've come from Ukraine or born here, are just so grateful to the British public and also the British government, whether you talk about British Johnson or Sunak or Prime Minister now, the fact that they've tried to do something here, that there are that they are talking about in Parliament, there are issues that they are trying to sort out, whether it be Homes for Ukraine scheme, either which, or now which we find which is really an issue for everywhere is uh, accommodation, trying to find accommodation for refugees, and it's and it's proving very difficult. But for first and foremost, yeah, we're just forever grateful to the British public and to the British government for allowing refugees to come here, and also for the aid, military, everything else they give to Ukraine. Now, many listeners were thinking you sound like a proper Londoner, and of course you are. Just, if you don't mind my asking, obviously you're, you're British-Ukrainian or Ukrainian-British. How do you balance those two things or, or how do you see yourself in the context of you've been here a long time? Like, do you see yourself as more British or do you see yourself as, is it 50-50? Like- no, I think first and foremost, proud to be British. Uh, I, always, I always say that I'm British-Ukrainian and Ukrainian-British. I have no issues saying that I was born here. My parents came here after the war. They were eternally grateful then to the British government to allow them to stay. So, yep. Sometimes I wear my Ukrainian hat, sometimes <laughs> I wear my British hat. But I am I accept that I have Ukrainian roots, so I'm extremely proud of my roots. I try to support, I, I know the language, I can read and write. But like I say, it's it's one of those where you mix and match and do whatever you can. No regrets whatsoever. Like I say, I, I'm proud to be British as well. And what would you say to those now, obviously almost two years into this war, I suppose what's your message to people on the kind of cultural Ukrainian front, there's so much focus on the war specifically. But events like this, I think, are important to remind people that Ukrainian culture is thriving and is very much emboldened by what has occurred in their country. And of course, the diaspora in terms of re-celebrating. Perhaps some people have come back to the community that I've interviewed in the past. Just very interested in your reflections on that, lastly. I think what... I don't want to talk about the president of the northern country that invaded us, but he, he always talks about his people and, and Ukrainian people being one people, you know, united by cultural language, history. No, we're not. Ukraine has a separate culture and history and, and language and traditions that now people are beginning to discover. And now we have more young people which understand that and they're, they're involved in the cultural sphere, whether you call it cultural diplomacy or whatever, but they're being more proactive they're being more proactive amongst many European countries, amongst the populations of Europe as well, showing that this is what we are. Whether it'll be whether it's folklore or something modern, which Ukrainians are very adept at doing as well, that shows that we're not one people, we're not one country, we're not together in any way. So, and congratulations to them that they're actually finding the time, finding the resources, and finding energy to do that. Thank you very much. Pleasure and a Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you to everyone who took the time to speak to me. Inevitably on a podcast covering war, we are compelled to focus much of our time on the military and political spheres. But it's always a pleasure to cover the all-important cultural dimension. For it's that, after all, that Ukrainians are fighting for. This time last year, Francis and I stood outside of Telegraph Towers, as we are now, joined also by Dom, and reflected on covering a terrible war that had lasted almost ten months. Now, exactly one year later, the podcast team has covered the war in Ukraine for over 650 days. 650 days of the bloodiest warfare Europe has seen since the Second World War. 650 days too many. We will continue... Over the festive period, we'll be releasing our usual special episodes until we resume our daily broadcasts before the new year. Thank you to all of you who've stuck with us these past 12 months. Every one of you is appreciated and it remains a cause of 
genuine sorrow that we can't reply to all of your messages and emails individually. One day, we hope to be able to shake all of your hands. But in the meantime, we wish you all well for the Christmas break. We don't know what the new year will bring. The Telegraph sale raises challenges, as does the changing geopolitical environment. But our personal commitment remains unflinching. Throughout 2023, we've continued to get a lot of very generous messages saying how much Ukraine the latest has helped make sense of this stupid, horrible and mindless war. They are all appreciated. Yes, we're committed. Yes, we're as enraged as you. But yes, we're only human too. And knowing that you're in our corner with a proverbial damp flannel for our foreheads and the very real offers of a damp beer or two in the future has helped keep us going. So I'll raise a glass to all of you this evening. Thanks, everybody. In that spirit, we wanted to conclude the year with something a little more upbeat. Earlier this year, we received an email from the Australian-European punk band EcoWar, who listened to the podcast, and toured Ukraine in June as a result. They've recorded a special song dedicated to the Ukrainian people, riffing off the titles to our podcast, called Nobody's Gonna Break Us which will end this final regular broadcast of 2023. Thank you so much for listening, and see you in 2024. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody.